Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. If you're local, come check us out. Our Sunday service is at 1030. Uh, We're located off of Highway 316. If you're traveling through town, be our guest. You can learn more about the church by visiting our website, which is calvary316.tv. Regardless of where you're listening, whether it's on the radio or via our podcast, I do encourage you to stay with me for the next hour, give or take, as we seek to deconstruct the negative perceptions of Christians by boldly and brashly discussing today's relevant topics in an honest and genuine way. And it's likely that I'm going to offend the majority of Christians today. If you are a Catholic, you're going to probably not be very pleased with me. If you're a Protestant, you're probably not going to be very pleased with me. I'm going to discuss something today that will probably irk um, everyone on all spectrums of Christianity. Now, this is not a topic of grand controversy. It's really more or less something that I find interesting uh, that I want to talk about today. Uh, Let me set the stage a little bit by recounting an experience I had more than a decade ago. I had the unique opportunity was working at Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain. This was right before Jessica and I got married, actually. And uh, the church that I was serving at were taking a trip to Israel. And so being on staff, the youth pastor at the time, uh, I was given the opportunity to go. Uh, It was an opportunity I quickly jumped at, thought, man, this is going to be fantastic. And off we went to the Holy Land. Uh, Long flight, but wow. You know, I had always been told... For years and years and years, uh, my father has been to Israel more than a dozen times. I've always heard it stated that, you know, when you go to the Holy Land and you, and you walk the places that Jesus walked, that aside from it being this really cool spiritual experience, that your Bible reads completely differently forever. <laughs> uh, best way to describe it is that your Bible literally becomes a pop-up book. And I had always thought, hearing this analogy over the years, sure, right, okay, Um, sounds wonderful. Finally, though, went, and it's true. Your Bible becomes a pop-up book. It's unbelievable to go to Galilee and to be standing on on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and to see across the shore to Tiberias and Capernaum, and you're blown away by how small it is. And then immediately, the the context of Jesus going from town to town to town, as he's walking around this lake, it it comes into view. And Jesus being uh, sending the disciples across in one night, it it makes more sense. Galilee, beautiful place. The Judean wilderness, the Jordan Valley. So many cool places. Caesarea Philippi by the sea. Probably, though, nothing really compares to the time that you'll spend in Jerusalem. There's just something about it. You feel as though you're visiting the epicenter um, of the world. It's an awesome place to go. An awesome place to to walk through the old streets, to visit the Temple Mount, to visit all these various locations, to see the, the Garden Tomb, to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulcher or Golgotha, to visit the Mount of Olives and go down and and literally spend some time with the Lord there in the Garden of Gethsemane in in a grouping of of, of olive trees, a grove that dates back some 2,000 plus years. The very trees that were there when Jesus was was betrayed, when he swept great droplets of blood. Jerusalem is 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 an awesome place. Now, with that context, we were on the Mount of Olives, And if you've ever seen a picture of the city of Jerusalem, kind of a panorama of Jerusalem, and you've got the Temple Mount, the East Gate, the Dome of the Rock, all of those pictures are taken from the summit of the Mount of Olives. So anytime you see that particular view, uh, that's the view you would have from the Mount of Olives. It's very cool. So we were there, the Mount of Olives. Again, this is 10 plus years ago talking about the significance of this mountain, all the different things that took place here, talking really using the vantage point to talk about Jerusalem, 
to explain a lot of the geography. It's a great vantage point for that, to see the, the Kidron Valley, the Mount Moriah, how all these things kind of tie together. You end up ultimately walking down the Mount of Olives, crossing the Kidron. You walk up into uh, the, the old city. Again, th- this walk that Jesus would have taken. Anytime he was in Jerusalem, he stayed on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives in a town, a suburb known as Bethany. You get to walk, the very walk that Jesus uh, embarked on every single time. Every morning, he would leave Bethany, go into the city, and then from the city would return, going back up the Mount of Olives to Bethany. Now, it was while we were there on the Mount of Olives, uh, discussing the significance of many things, an idea really hit me. It was something I'd never heard anyone uh, present before. I'd never heard anyone talk about. Wasn't even specifically mentioned uh, in the lesson that we had in, in the historical significance and in, in the lecture while we were there on the Mount of Olives, but, but I had just had this thought. And as we were walking down the Mount of Olives, I, I had the, the chance to kind of have some one-on-one time with our guide. He's a Hebrew man, lives in Israel, uh, a Christian. And I asked him, a particular question, presented a, a particular theory. And he looked at me and he smiled. And he said, no one has ever asked me that question. What you just presented, the theory you just presented, I've always believed that to be true. Now, for reasons that we'll get into, he could never affirm it publicly because it would have ramifications for the tourism industry, for both Protestant and Catholics alike, But I want to unpack an idea. Now, let me again set some context. John chapter 19, in verses 16 and 18, and this follows a a series of events. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, He's experienced, at this point, six trials, all at night, all illegal, all in front of a kangaroo court, all a setup. Jesus first appearing before Annas, and then Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, before then being presented before the Sanhedrin. Once Jesus was officially accused of of blasphemy against God, he was delivered to, to Pontius Pilate. The Jews wanted to execute him. If they could have, it would have been by stoning, but their right to enact capital punishment had been revoked by the Romans some years before this. And so they have to deliver Jesus to Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the Roman gov- governor. It is only he that can sentence Jesus to, to death. And Pilate takes his role seriously. And, and there's three more trials that take place. The first one is before Pilate. Kind of a formal interrogation. Pilate trying to ascertain, why is this guy in front of me? Um, he uh, claims to be the king of the Jews, but he in the same breath, says his kingdom is not of this earth, and it's not by violence, it's by truth. And, you know, Pilate's kind of wrestling. He, he's, he even declares in the first trial, he's innocent. I don't know why he's here. He's done nothing deserving of death. He hears that Jesus is from Galilee, and knowing that Herod, King Herod, uh, that that was his particular jurisdiction, decides maybe he's got an out. He doesn't have to deal with this political hot potato around Jesus. So he sends him to, to Herod, but Jesus is quiet. Now, this is the same Herod who had John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, Jesus' cousin beheaded just a few months before this. Jesus doesn't engage uh, Herod at all, doesn't answer any of his questions, doesn't play ball. Herod bores of Jesus, and he sends him back to Pilate, but he does Pilate a favor. Herod concurs with Pilate's original assessment that Jesus was innocent of any type of wrongdoing. And so uh, three trials before the Jewish establishment, a trial before Pilate, a trial before Herod. Now he's back to Pilate. And it's during this, this last little bit of time that, that Pilate is doing everything he can to, to just get out of the dynamic. He brings Jesus before the, the, the crowd, along with a known criminal, a robber, a murderer, a revolutionary named Barabbas. Presents to the crowd that had gathered. It's, it's a custom I deliver someone at Passover. Would you like this man, Jesus, the king of the Jews, or this known criminal, Barabbas? And then to Pilate's utter dismay, he, the crowd cries out, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Still, Pilate is not committed to that because he, he knows Jesus is innocent and he knows that, that he's been delivered over simply because of the envy of the religious leaders. So to coax a confession out of Jesus, if nothing else, maybe get some pity. He has Jesus scourged. Brutal. Brutal exercise. 
Following the scourging, Jesus is mocked. A crown of thorns is placed onto his head, a purple robe on his back. They beat on him some more. They bring him back to Pilate, all in this final trial. Pilate interrogates Jesus even further, still finding no fault in him whatsoever. Presents him again to the crowd. At this point, they, they cry out angrily, crucify him, crucify him. According to Matthew's account, Pilate, again sensing that, that he's involved in some grand tragedy against his own wishes, he washes his hands, says, I'm washing my hands of the, the blood of this innocent man. And then the crowd is like, his blood be upon us and our children. And then again, John chapter 19, verses 16 and 18, he writes that Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And Jesus, bearing his cross, went to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him. In the Greek, this phrase, the place of the skull, it's, it's an interesting, interesting phrase. It, it has some origins in Latin and Greek for cranium. And then in Latin, we, we get the phrase calvaria. Ultimately, place of the skull, that's actually where we derive the term Calvary. Calvary, literally the place of the skull. In his account, John simply tells us this place, Calvary, where Jesus was crucified, was known in its day by the locals as Golgotha. Now, the exact location of Golgotha, Calvary, it's not known. Despite what you'll hear Protestants say, and, and, and in spite of what the Catholics believe, the exact location is still a, a mystery. Now, now, there are several theories about this, this term Golgotha, what John is, is getting at by using the term. There are, there are those who believe that Golgotha was simply a descriptive term that referenced a hillside outside of Jerusalem that resembled a skull and maybe had the face, an outline of, of a human face. Again, while not recognized by any official church, Protestants believe that a rock face that looks like a skull located northwest of the city near the traditional garden tomb is the site of Golgotha because it looks like a human face. We'll get to that more in a bit. Since Golgotha can be translated as Golgotha or Mount of Execution, there are, there are those who present a, a secondary theory that it was just a reference to a mountain located near a cemetery. Lots of death. The most interesting theory states that Golgotha is a contraction of, of Goliath of Gath and was the location which King David, years before, had buried the head of the giant. Historically, the location of Golgotha, or Calvary, was originally determined by a woman named Helena, who was the mother of Emperor Constantine. She determined with no archaeological experience or pedigree whatsoever that Golgotha Calvary was in the western part of Jerusalem proper, and to commemorate that holy spot, in 325 AD, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built on that location. Now, when we come back, I want to talk about the four biblical requirements necessary for Calvary or Golgotha, because I don't think it's either of these locations that most Christians believe. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. One of the most important visions of the Outlaw Radio Show is our desire to challenge you to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on your own. The sad reality is many Christians fail to reflect Christ because they don't know what they believe or why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to the Outlaw Radio Show tackling tough topics you might not hear at church, it is our desire to equip, inspire, and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this important process, we want you to check out blueletterbible.org. It would be an understatement to say that this website will transform the way you study the Bible. In fact, it will revolutionize it. Aside from their treasure trove of free online commentaries, blueletterbible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it super simple to dive into the original language behind a text. So if you want to dig deeper into your study of scripture and in the process, learn and grow, we encourage you to check out blueletterbible.org today. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I, I preface this episode by saying I'm going to probably offend some Catholics, I'm going to offend some Protestants, mainly because I disagree with both of their 
theories pertaining to the location of Golgotha or Calvary, the location of Jesus's crucifixion. Protestants believe and identify Golgotha to being northwest of the city of Jerusalem near the traditional garden tomb. The only justification for this particular location is that the the hill itself looks like a skull. On the flip side to it, the only reason that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built in the western part of Jerusalem proper was that arbitrarily Helena, the mother of Constantine, with no archaeological experience, just decided that was the location. Now, as you study the topic, where was Jesus crucified? Where really is Golgotha? There are four biblical requirements that are necessary for the location. Number one, we know that that Golgotha is a place of execution, just generally, in in a broad sense. Meaning, according to Levitical law, that a place of execution had to be outside the city gates. In Jewish culture, they didn't crucify people, but they still executed via stoning. We see this actually in the book of Acts with Stephen, the first martyr of the church. They took him outside of the walls of the city, outside of the gates. So first we know that Golgotha, Calvary, being a place of execution, it had to be outside of Jerusalem, but still close enough to be used within walking distance, a mile, give or take. Secondly, as a place in Jesus's day, for Roman executions, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Aside from it being outside of the city, but close enough to be used, Golgotha would have to be situated, just because of Roman custom, along a common roadway coming into and out of Jerusalem. If you don't know anything of a, of a Roman crucifixion, it wasn't just an effective way of killing someone. It was an effective way of making a point to the masses. The crime would be posted at the top of the cross. The prisoner crucified just a few feet off the ground. It was a PR event more than anything, letting the the masses know the consequence of revolt, of revolution, of crime. So one Golgotha, it had to be out of the city of Jerusalem, but close. Because it's a, a place of Roman execution, it has to be along a common roadway where there would be a lot of people going to and fro passing the crosses. Third, because according to John's gospel and other places, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea will later procure the body of Christ following his death and lay him in a garden tomb, his own, that had never been used before the start of the Sabbath. It was was an expedited process, one that wasn't even complete. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they get permission from Pilate. We want the body. The Sabbath is hurrying up. It's close, which is why the the Roman soldiers come by to break their legs. They break two of the three, but Jesus is already dead. They're trying to speed it up. Joseph and and Nicodemus, they they take Jesus' body, and they begin the burial process. They get him to the tomb, but they can't complete it. They actually have to wait for three days in order to return to finish the process. What this tells us is that, again, aside from being outside of the city of Jerusalem, but close, and and along a common roadway, according to Roman tradition, because Jesus is laid in a tomb very close. A a tomb had to be close. (laughs) I guess that's pretty logical, right? Golgotha had to be situated near an expensive tomb reserved for for royalty, one that actually had a garden. Three days later, Jesus' resurrection, Mary Magdalene goes to the garden. Again, one of these ladies that's going to continue the burial process, and she ends up mistaking the resurrected Jesus for what? For a gardener. Four, the final kind of requirement, prerequisite for the location, is found in Mark 15, verses 38 and 39. This This is what Mark writes. He gives us a fascinating detail. He says, Then the veil of the temple, this is when Jesus dies, was torn in two from top to bottom. So, when the centurion who stood opposite Jesus saw that, so this is all present tense, Jesus cried out, he breathed his last, and the centurion said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, what Mark 15 seems to indicate is that from the location of the crucifixion of Jesus, 
the Roman centurion, he was able to see Jesus die and at the same time look into the temple courts to see the veil torn. Now, there, there are some that argue this particular passage. Well, my point would be that the plain reading of the text seems to be what the early church fathers also viewed it as or interpreted it as. Tatian, early church father, who writes in 160 AD, let me, let me read his commentary on Mark 15. He says, And immediately the face of the door of the temple was rent, in, rent into two parts from top to bottom. And the officer of the foot soldiers and they that were with him who were guarding Jesus, so he places the location clearly with Jesus, when they saw the earthquake, the things which came to pass, they feared greatly, they praised God, and they said this man was righteous, and truly he was the Son of God. And the multitudes that were come together to the site, the site of the crucifixion, when they saw what came to pass, they returned and smote upon their breasts. So you might want to read in, and some translations have a different rendering of Mark 15, but the early church fathers viewed it in its plain reading that the centurion was at the cross, able to peer into the temple, seeing the veil torn. Now, the problem with the location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre being Golgotha and the popular location of Protestants, that hillside, northwest Jerusalem, that looks like a skull, beyond the fact that, that, that both lack a lot of archaeological evidence— the problem with both locations is that neither factor in the ability of those at the cross, at Calvary, on Calvary, to view into the temple to see the tearing of the veil. In fact, from both the location of the popular idea of, of where Protestants believe Golgotha is and the location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's impossible. It would be impo- If Jesus died in either of those two locations, it would be impossible for you to see Jesus die and see the veil in the temple torn. So, with that in mind, I presented a theory, as I'm chewing on these things, to the guide when I was in Israel, a position that he confirmed and agreed with, and it's that the location of Golgotha, in fact, really the only location consistent with the biblical requirements we just laid out, is in fact the Mount of Olives. See, I I believe that Golgotha the place of the skull, Calvary, the the place where Jesus was crucified, was on top of the Mount of Olives. Now, let, let me just quickly explain to you how the Mount of Olives fits into the biblical requirements. First, consider this. The Mount of Olives is located outside the city. Not only is it located outside the city of Jerusalem, but it's close. It's within walking distance. The very night Jesus is betrayed, he's able to leave the upper room in Jerusalem and and find himself the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press, located at the base of the Mount of Olives. So it fits that first requirement. It's outside the walls, outside the gates, but close. It's in walking distance. Number two, I mentioned that the other requirement is that because it's a place of Roman execution, that Golgotha had to be on a popular road. Again, the Mount of Olives fits this, this requirement. The Mount of Olives is actually situated on the most popular, most traversed roadway connecting Jerusalem with the Jordan Valley. It was one of the main ways in and out of the city over the Mount of Olives. Fits requirement number two. Number three, located at the southern base of the Mount of Olives, what do we find? We find a garden. And not only do we find a garden, but we also find a graveyard specifically designated for the nobility of Jerusalem. You will see this when you go to the Mount of Olives. When you go and visit Jerusalem and you're on the Mount of Olives, and, and, and as I mentioned, you take this walk down through the garden across the Kidron Valley, right there at the base are all these tombs very close to the Garden of Gethsemane. Tombs that date back to the first century, tombs designated, designed for the wealthiest of wealthy of Jerusalem, men like Joseph of Arimathea. Probably the most convincing bit of evidence pointing to the Mount of Olives being Golgotha is that since the temple, we know, and its construction geographically faced east, what was due east of the temple? (laughs) It was the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is located due east of the city of Jerusalem, meaning 
that the only place that you would be able to peer into the temple in order to witness the veil being torn in two as Jesus is breathing his last is only from the peak of the Mount of Olives. There's no other location that fits these requirements. Let me give you a little bit more evidence to substantiate this idea from the Jewish Mishnah. Let me read you a quote. The Mishnah records that the temple walls were high, very tall walls, save only the eastern wall. And why? Because the high priest that burns the red heifer and stands on the top of the Mount of Olives should be able to look directly into the entrance of the sanctuary when the blood of the red heifer is sprinkled. Now, the point of the Mishnah is that because of the the height of the walls, all but the eastern wall, the only place you could be outside of the city and see into the temple would be from the east or the Mount of Olives. Now, I know we're almost halfway through the show, and there are some of you thinking, who cares? (laughs) Like, why does any of this matter? And... Again, I'm presenting a theory, a theory I'm convinced on, but with the time we have remaining, I want to articulate why this actually matters. This is not just a a silly theological argument you would have at Bible college between like 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. Like there's an actual implication, a relevance to Jesus being crucified on the Mount of Olives. Now we're going to kind of I'm going to kind of tease you with that thought. We'll dive into that when we come back. But I want to let you know that one of the most important aspects of our show is connecting with you the listening audience. And I just want to give you three easy ways you can contact me. First, email, most simplistic. info@outlawradio.org. You can also check us out facebook.com/theradiooutlaw. And if you're on to Twitter, if you're into Twitter, on Twitter, check us out at @radio_outlaw. Again, my name is Zach Adams. Don't go anywhere. We'll come back here with the Outlaw Radio Show. Don't go anywhere. Pastor Zach Adams will be back in just a moment with the second half of the Outlaw Radio Show. In today's edition of the Outlaw Radio Show, Zach is talking about the possibility of a different location for the crucifixion of Jesus. This is certainly challenging. And for those of you that know biblical history and maybe even the land of Israel, this will definitely be challenging to some of your thoughts. So we want to encourage you to stay with us. Don't go anywhere. The second half of the Outlaw Radio Show is coming right up. You're listening to the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Today, Zach is talking about a unique perspective on the location of the crucifixion. Here's Zach. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I'm talking about a a theory that Golgotha, the place Jesus was crucified, is in actuality not the Church of the Holy Sepulcher or where Protestants tend to believe Northwest Jerusalem, the rock face that looks like a skull, but is in fact located, the location historically, being on the Mount of Olives. It fits the biblical requirements, but I kind of let this off by teasing you as to why it matters, because I think it matters greatly. First, if Golgotha was located on the Mount of Olives, the geographic ramifications of Jesus' journey to the cross become all the more powerful. So we know Jesus is sentenced to crucifixion, the Praetorium, the, the pavement, Gabbatha, the fortress of Antonio. So if Jesus, after his sentencing, is being led from the fortress of Antonio, if he's going to the Mount of Olives, he would have exited the city from the north. Instead of heading west, he would have instead gone north, meaning Jesus would have had to have exited the city using the northern gate, which is known as the Sheep Gate. Now, now from there, Jesus would again find himself doing what? Crossing the Brook Kidron to make up the ascent to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Brook Kidron, over 260,000 lambs have been slaughtered for Passover. There's an aqueduct drawing water into the temple, washing it out into the Kidron Kidron Valley just to get the blood out of the city. It's, It's a bloody mess. The Kidron Valley at this point, 
at this juncture in Passover is a torrent of blood that Jesus would have had to cross through. The word Kidron literally means black, black from the blood. Think about the imagery there. The perfect lamb of God, Jesus, the lamb of God being sacrificed for the sins of the world. He has to leave the temple, leave Jerusalem, leave the holy city through the sheep gate, the lamb of God. And then he has to pass through the blood of the Passover sacrifices, himself being a sacrifice. Jesus, a bloody mess as he's carrying this cross, falling down his blood, mixing with the blood of the atoning sacrifices. It just reinforces all of this significance. So first, if, if Golgotha was located on the Mount of Olives, the, just the ramifications of his journey, the picture, Sheet Gate, Kidron, it's beautiful. The second reason, though, Jesus dying on the Mount of Olives is so important ties directly into the Levitical procedures concerning the sacrifice of the red heifer. Now, admittedly, and I'm just going to kind of preface this, I'm about to get really geeky. If you're listening, just hunker down for like the next 10 minutes. You'll appreciate it, trust me. In Numbers chapter 19, let me, let me read you a few verses. We're told that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This is during the Exodus, as they're building the tabernacle. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give this red heifer to Eleazar the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer should be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, its offal shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire burning the heifer. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water purification. It is for the purifying from sin. So you got that? You didn't expect to be in Numbers chapter 19 today, I'm sure. But here we are. And this passage tells us something interesting. In the dedication of the tabernacle, this earthly dwelling for the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, in the center of the camp. The Lord instructs that a red heifer, without spot, and specifically without a yoke, was to be taken outside of the camp and slaughtered. Its blood then used to purify the place of meaning, and the body burned. Once this burning was completed, the ashes would be collected and preserved for future use for a purification from sin, so that anyone that incurred a defilement through contact with the dead, this, this water purification ceremony could take place using the ashes of the red heifer. Now, what's interesting is that this particular offering, the, the ashes of the red heifer, this whole procedure, it's very unique. In fact, it's not something that regularly happened, nor is it instructed to. The sacrifice, in fact, was to only occur when the tabernacle was formally dedicated. And then later, we see when the temple, Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, in all likelihood, at some point, even again with Herod's temple. You see, the ashes of the red heifer were viewed as being sufficient for all the people and the one-time sacrifice universal. When a person needed purification from contact with the dead, a fresh heifer wasn't required to be sacrificed. You didn't have to kill another red heifer. You see, it was a one-time sacrifice, one heifer, sufficient for all. Now, when, while in the context of the Exodus, and, and again, specifically the tabernacle, the Numbers 19 context, that the offering was to occur outside of the camp. Once the Jews entered the land of promise, once they 
they settle in and, and, and David's heart's moved. Instead of this tabernacle, this tent dwelling, he wants to build the temple. Once they've settled in the land, Jerusalem's established as the capital. The, the temple's built outside the camp. Well, what does that now mean? Again, I go back to that passage I shared with you from the Mishnah outside the camp. Like where was the sacrifice of the red heifer to take place? The Mishnah writes, the temple walls were high, save only the Eastern wall, because the high priest that burns the red heifer and stands on the Mount of Olives should be able to look directly into the entrance of the sanctuary when the blood of the red heifer is sprinkled. The point is that the sacrifice once the temple was built of the red heifer took place on the Mount of Olives outside the camp. Again, the symbolic nature of all of this is really radical. Just like the red heifer, consider Jesus. Jesus is taken, well, he's taken outside the camp. He's taken outside of the camp to be slaughtered, to be a sacrifice. He's taken outside the camp to the very location of the red heifer, to the Mount of Olives. And it's there that Jesus is sacrificed. He doesn't have to be sacrificed all the time. Or He was a sacrifice once and for all to purify men of sin. And just like the red heifer, Jesus was without spot, a requirement, sinless, and without a yoke, meaning he's willing. You see, like the red heifer, Jesus' one-time sacrifice was completely permanent and sufficient for all. You know, I'm not, I'm not really pulling this out of nowhere. You know, they say that the best commentary of the Old Testament is the New Testament. Well, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, this is what we're told of Jesus. We're told, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, Jesus entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer, the sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Jesus, who through the internal spirit offered himself without spot, now cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And you know, the actual sacrifice of the heifer, it presents this picture of the cross. Once the heifer was killed and was to be burned, the priest was to take cedar wood, hyssop and scarlet, cast them with the heifer into the fire, How fascinating that Jesus was crucified on a cross made from cedar. And while on the cross, he was offered a drink from a hyssop branch. And oh, how the red scarlet pictures the cleansing blood of Jesus. You know, aside from this, you know, the the process wasn't given to Moses who represented the law, nor to Aaron who represented the priesthood, but to this man, Eleazar, whose name means God has helped, helper of God. Sound familiar? Don't go anywhere. We'll pick up that thought here with the Outlaw Radio Show. Did you know beyond the unique content of the Outlaw Radio Show, Pastor Zach Adams also has an extensive teaching archive available online for free? If you love to study the Bible, we encourage you to check out c316.tv. Currently, Pastor Zach is teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of John, But C316.tv also has video, audio, and sermon notes for the Gospel of Mark, the Book of Acts, Ephesians, Genesis, Philemon, Jonah, Philippians, as well as an in-depth study on the Olivet Discourse and Jesus' seven letters to the churches recorded in Revelation 3 and 4. With over 17,000 minutes of expositional Bible teaching and more than 2,775 pages of written sermon transcripts, C316.tv is a must-visit for any serious student of the Bible. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. Numbers 19 and this sacrifice of the red heifer, which according to the Mishnah would take place on the Mount of Olives. Jesus offered also on the Mount of Olives. The whole procedure, this act of offering the first red heifer to purify this earthly dwelling place of God, the act wasn't designated according to Numbers 19 to Moses, who represented the law. It wasn't his job. Nor was the task given to Aaron, who represents the priesthood. 
Instead, it's given to Aaron's son, Eleazar, a mysterious man indeed. And the Hebrew, his name, Eleazar, is God has helped, or literally helper of God. Again, the symbolism is radical. In the same way, the sacrifice of the red heifer correlates to Jesus' one-time sacrifice for you and I, satisfying the penalty of, of your sin and the death that results. But it's then from his blood, well, the Holy Spirit, Eleazar, takes and sprinkles it over you and I, purifying each of us to be what? Temples of the living God, dwelling places of the Most High. So I mentioned that this conversation of of Golgotha, Calvary, being on the Mount of Olives is not just an academic one that has some relevance, that is important. First, simply from the picture of of Jesus' journey to the cross, leaving, exiting north through the Sheep Gate, crossing through the blood of the sacrifices, the blood of the lambs, through the Kidron Valley, going up to the Mount of Olives. Not only does the Mount of Olives being the location of Golgotha reinforce this picture of the red heifer, Jesus' one-time sacrifice, the sprinkling of purification, beautiful stuff. But the third reason I think Jesus dying on the Mount of Olives is so significant is that of the 15 times this particular mountain is referenced in Scripture, every single time, and this is amazing to me, every single time you run across the Mount of Olives in Scripture, it always speaks of separation of separation. Back in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel was a prophet serving in exile. He was a prophet in Babylon. And in his prophecies, in his book, he sees the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of God, depart from the Holy of Holies. He sees it leave the Holy of Holies leaving the temple, leaving the holy city. It will ultimately ascend to heaven, the Shekinah glory of God. But not before Ezekiel recalls how the glory of the Lord stopped above the mountain east of it. Matthew Henry commentates on this that God, in doing so, was separating himself from the vileness of his people. And indeed he was, the glory of God leaving the temple, going to heaven, but first, how fascinating that it stopped. The glory of God stops momentarily on top of the Mount of Olives. You know, every time that Jesus frequented the Mount of Olives, at least the recorded instances of him doing this, he maintains this symbolism of separation. You know, in the garden, Jesus, wrapping up his time with his disciples there in the upper room, instituting communion, washing their feet, identifying his betrayer, letting Peter know he would fail. This incredible dialogue that ensues, all recorded in John's gospel. As Jesus arrives to the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, he knows what's coming. He knows it won't be long until Judas brings a detachment of Roman soldiers with temple priests and guards, that an entourage will come and that he'll be arrested. Jesus knows as he's in the garden that beyond his arrest, he's going to be set up. He's not going to get a fair shake. It'll be a raw deal. In the end, Jesus knows that he's going to die and not just die. Jesus has already predicted in Matthew's gospel that he would go to Jerusalem for Passover, be betrayed, that the religious establishment would condemn him, but that it would then be the Gentiles who would crucify him. Jesus knew crucifixion was in his future. He also, by the way, says that three days later, he would rise from the dead. Jesus is in the garden, knowing what's coming. And we're told he does something interesting. He separates himself from the disciples. And he spends time alone with his father in prayer. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But then three times reiterating, not my will, but your will be done. He separates from the disciples. 
You know, after the crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus' ascension will take place where? From the Mount of Olives. The same place the glory of the Lord departed after leaving the Holy of Holies, Jesus will ascend to heaven. And in ascending from heaven from the Mount of Olives, what will Jesus be doing? He'll be separating himself physically from the church. And in his place, he'll send the Holy Spirit. That's not the only mention of the Mount of Olives as it pertains to Jesus. Prophetically, when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom here on this earth, he'll return to the very place he left, touching down on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is everywhere. Not only will Jesus then proceed to separate the elect from the wicked, but Zechariah, the prophet, says that when Jesus' foot touches back down onto the Mount of Olives, another separation will take place. The Mount of Olives, which you should note, is actually a mountain of separation. It has a northern summit separated from a southern summit by a small narrow inlet. But Zechariah recalls how the Mount of Olives, when Jesus touches down, will split into two. And a spring of water will bubble forth and rush down the Kidron Valley to the Dead Sea, restoring the earth. Why, why is this important? Again, the imagery is fascinating. If Jesus dies on a cross located on the Mount of Olives, and this process, Jesus will experience for you and I the most ultimate separation. See, from the cross, Jesus will cry out to his heavenly Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The moment Jesus became sin for us, he who knew no sin, a separation took place. And yet, it's amazing to me. But from that separation, what results? Living water, bubbling forth, flowing out, able to quench man's thirst spiritually by permanently restoring him to God. Like There's no question. Golgotha being on the Mount of Olives, you can't say with 100% certainty, but I believe that that is the location of Calvary because it's, it's not only more in line with the biblical requirements. Not only is, is, is the Mount of Olives just more consistent with the Le- Levitical typology of the red heifer, but the Mount of Olives being the place of Jesus' death, it provides for us deeper meaning. Not just behind Jesus' journey to the cross, but the cross itself, this separation and the experience If the Mount of Olives is in fact the location of Golgotha, the journey of the cross deepens in its meaning and the experiences of Jesus on the cross deepen in their symbolism. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. I'd love to hear from you. I know that was an interesting episode, an interesting theory I presented. Would love your feedback. Again, there are several ways that you can connect with us. Info at outlawradio.org. Facebook.com slash the radio outlaw or at radio underscore outlaw. That's our Twitter handle. A couple things, though, as we wrap up the episode that I want to encourage you to do. First, contact your local Christian radio station and just thank them that they're shining a light into your community via the radio waves. These people are not making a lot of money, they really do it as a ministry to the community. And just say thanks, it goes a long way. If you'd also be kind, thank them for carrying this type of programming as well. Second thing I want you to do is to visit our website. Our website is outlawradio.org. From the site, you can easily access our podcast, which is available on both iTunes as well as Google Play. You can listen again to this episode in its entirety or all previous episodes. Again, my name is Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for more of the Outlaw Radio Show. You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. 
As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.